Good morning. All right. So, um, so this last summer, Julie and I had an opportunity to go to uh, France and Germany for a hot second, and um, we were we had the opportunity to go to lots of cool places, and uh, museums were among them. And I saw something so I, awesome stuff. Saw lots of cool cool uh, classic art that I'd you know, heard about and all that. And I saw something that I'd never seen, uh, not that I couldn't have seen it here, but it just struck me where we were, which was um, people taking selfies in front of these classic works of art. I don't know if you've ever seen, has anybody ever seen this take place? In, it's a very strange thing. It's very, it struck me as very... Very strange, and and I'm not. I wasn't going to ask who's done it, but uh, we'll have uh, we'll re, we'll confess later again. We'll come back to the confession, but it struck me as really strange. And and I mean, I get it. I understand. You know, you're in this place and you want to commemorate. I'm I'm in this place in front of you know Van Gogh's Starry Night, and this is really awesome. But there was something really, uh, I don't know, disorienting for me about the process because or about the the, the situation. Because, you know, here I was standing, looking at this great work of art, and then somebody would, like, step in front of me. And if you've ever... I, I've never really paid attention to people taking selfies before, but it's really interesting. Um, and if you're a selfie taker, just consider how ridiculous you, you look sometimes. Because, you know, somebody, like, get through, and they're, like, arguing with their arguing with their spouse or with their mom or dad or whatever, and they'd get in front, and then they'd go... And then they take the picture, and then they'd be like, and then they'd be on, like, you know, stressed to do the rest of their work. It just struck me as very strange. Um, and then sometimes they would be talking, you know, like having conversations and socializing, again, in front of this great work of art. And it just struck me as odd. And I thought about that as I was preparing for today, um, because... A selfie, and again, I'm not judging selfies in, in general, but it was just that particular context, um, how it struck me as connecting with what we've been reading about, which is vanity and meaninglessness. And uh, concepts of vanity and meaninglessness uh, and what it introduces into our lives are consistent with this whole series of you know, teachings on, on Ecclesiastes. And some people, maybe some of us, find have typically found like the the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament of the Bible as depressing, you know, like oh, it traditionally attributed to Solomon, you know, oh Solomon was man, he was he needed some therapy, he needed some medicine, he was just tired from all his hard living and you know all the wealth and that, and and sometimes people wonder how this like dour view of life made its way into the canon of scripture, uh, sometimes even suggesting that uh, it's there to serve almost as a counterpoint, or like, to, like for Jesus to be like a counterpoint to, to like the Old Testament wisdom of people like, you know, from, from like the, the book like Ecclesiastes. Like he didn't know Jesus, and then we get Jesus and it's awesome, you know, everything's good. And... Um, 
But I thought about how being sad, and not that Ecclesiastes is a sad book, but I, I thought about how being sad and being wise are not mutually exclusive things. You know, like, they're, they, they, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. What is difficult can also be true. And frankly, far from depressing, I find Ecclesiastes to be one of the most unambiguously true books of the Bible. Like the, the wisdom doesn't, to me, doesn't take a whole lot to go like, yep, that's true. Because a lot of times in the Bible, you know, I think we have to do a little bit of interpreting and like, um, well, we always have to do interpreting, but we have to do a little bit of like thinking like, how do we apply this to our lives? So today I'm taking a look at uh, the scripture passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7 through 18. And so if you want to pull it up, you can. I'm going to read it. Um, I'm going to read the whole passage and then we're going to, we'll work our way through it. So chapter 9, verse 7 says, Go eat your food with gladness. Let me say that again. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither work nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a poor a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So I want to start with this one sinner destroys much good idea, and just the term good. Um, It seems to me that the search for what is good is at the heart of all of our spiritual questions. You know, like, what is good? What's, What's the good thing to do? What's the good path to take? You know, what is good? I believe that that I believe I can make an argument that that's at the heart of all of our spiritual questions. What's good? And, you know, like even Aristotle, you know, the philosopher, um, in one of his works, identified, like, he said that the thing that all human life is aimed at is the human good. 
that everything is about the human good. So whatever that is in identifying. So I want to just call a quick time out and ask us to, to speak together. What are some concepts, some, some implications of the word good? So just like w- when you think of something being good, what is associated with that? And this isn't a trick question. So just what do you think? Altruistic. What else? Appropriate. Appropriate. Good. What else? Beneficial. Beneficial. What else? Generous. Generous. A few more? For my students, I say a thousand extra credit points in my heart. (laughs) (laughs) How about two more? What do you think of? Kindness. What else? Something what? Integrity. All right, awesome. There is this book. So thank you, thank you. So there's this book that we read with our kids that I was able to find. Maybe some of you uh, have seen this. It's called That's Good, That's Bad. Anybody ever seen this book? Anybody? You should all go out and buy it. Every one of us should buy this book. (laughs) So I'm not going to read the book to you, but I'm going to just... a couple of pages. One day a little boy went to the zoo with his mother and father. They bought him a shiny red balloon. Look at the beautiful red balloon. What do you think happened? It lifted him up high into the sky. Wow! Oh, that's good. No, that's bad. The balloon drifted for miles and miles until it came to a hot, steamy jungle. It broke on the branch of a tall, prickly tree. Pop! Oh, that's bad. No, that's good. The little boy fell into a muddy river. Splat! He climbed up onto a roly-poly hippopotamus and rode to shore. Giddy up! Oh, that's good. No, that's bad. Ten noisy baboons were squat. Okay, you get it. <laughs> I love that book, and I always loved it, but the older I've gotten, the more I appreciate it because it makes sense to every adult. I think all of us, like, we get it, right? Like, yeah, things that we think are good are bad sometimes, and the things we think are bad are good sometimes. And... I think even kids get that, you know, like they, there's something that just speaks to us about it. And what I like about it is it exposes the absurdity with which we navigate our lives and our penchant for labeling events in our lives one thing or another. Um, you know, like I just said, that, oh, that thing happened to me, that was good. Oh, actually, no, that was bad. And because of this thing that happened or this other thing, I thought it was bad, but actually... It worked out for good. Is that sin when we label things good or bad or bad or good? I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe it is sin when we are labeling things in our lives. And that's a little bit of what I want to consider today. So consider when we say something is good, what's the basis? And And just time out. I'm going back to this last verse where the writer says, one sinner destroys much good. Okay, that's where I'm, that's my jumping off point. So when we say something's good, what's the basis for our assessment? And it seems to me that in nearly every case, we're using ourselves as the, as like the base. Um, like we're the measure. In other words, if what's happening affects us in what we see as a good way, uh, then we say it's good. Oh, I'm happy. That's good. Uh, you know, I got a 
better paying job. That's good. Or, you know, whatever. I'm, whatever, however it feels to us. And if it doesn't feel good, then it's bad. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, I say, that's where that word vanity comes in. That's vanity. Like we're calling this thing good or this thing bad. Like a selfie in a museum of classic artworks. Like, oh, you look great. That, that, man, your hair looks amazing in that picture. What's behind you? Oh, this classic Renaissance artwork. Cool. But you look awesome. Okay. Um, and earlier in the scripture, in this book, uh, the writer said, he, call, he calls this kind of thing chasing after the wind. Chasing after the wind. And so we, I mean, that's absurd, right? Chasing after the wind, you know, which way is the wind going? But I was thinking about that, and I think um, Brittany or um, Melissa, I think, also identified when we read that scripture that, you know, wind in scripture is also a, uh, a metaphor or for, uh, for God, for the Spirit of God. Wind and breath and spirit often, like I think 40% of the time that these words are used, it's the same word, just translated in a different way. And it's about God's spirit often. Many people, I think, are often chasing after the wind of God. Like we, we're chasing after what, the, what we think the spirit is doing. And when we do that, we're like, we're, we're, and we do, we do so loudly, I think. And so like, we, I hope this makes sense. Where is the spirit doing good? We ask that kind of question. Where is God working? Which is always a really weird question to me. Where is he working? Well, it's not here. Go over there. Oh, yeah, you know, like what a, I mean, really, kind of what a stupid question that we ask sometimes. Where is God at work? Um, and how do I get some of it? You know, where is God doing good? And how do I get some of that? I want some of that goodness. We sing about it. A lot of our worship songs, not necessarily ours here, but a lot of worship songs are about that, you know. God, you're good, and I want you, I want that goodness. Shout to God, weep, crying out. And I, I wasn't able to really work this, think this through uh, this as I was preparing, but I, I would, I'm interested in uh, looking through particularly the, the Old Testament and seeing when in Scripture, this is totally a little tangent, but when in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, when people were crying out to God, God, help me! Were they, did God respond? To, he responded to them. But how many times was it like, oh, I told you I'd be there, and now you're weeping and crying and worrying. Here I am, right? Okay, there's water. From the rock. I got gotcha. you. And, okay, yes, here's the sea where I'm splitting the sea open. You're going to, you're going to, do you know what I mean? Like, so, but seems, to, and again, I haven't really worked this out, but I, I have a suspicion. I'm, I'm curious if many of the times when we talk about, oh, we should just cry out to God, it's really out of our own need to, like, control the moment and not be, we're not really being, we're not really trusting because we're just like, God, God, where are you? And he's like, oh, Man, I told you, I'm there, I'm there, I'm, 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 here I am, I'll show you, I'll be, you know. So just think about that, that we associate what seems good in our lives with God in our lives. 
But when the supposed good stuff ends, then we like want to sniff out like where's maybe God somewhere else? He's not where we are. God's in this direction. Nope, he's in this direction. Nope, he's in this direction. Okay. Vain, absurd, loud. We're so hungry for truth, but again, like my image of the selfies in front of the museum pieces, we're right in front of the truth, but we're taking a selfie. We're thinking about ourselves, but we're right in front of the truth. So, what the Koheleth? What does Koheleth tell us? All right, so let's go back to the scripture. Go eat your food. So, like, what are we supposed to do? Okay, great. Everything's vain. Everything's meaningless. We suck. You know, what do we do? What do we do? All right, well, here's what Koheleth tells us in this passage. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. So it seems to me that one of the messages in this passage is to be glad and be joyful. And I love that line, God already approves what you do. So, again, I'm, and I'm, coming, I'm, I'm responding to this scripture. That's, you know, I'm, I'm interpreting it and I'm responding to it. I'm just trying to let it speak to us, even in some of the quirkiness of it. So, if I want to align uh, or I want to walk in the will of God, you know, we use that language. I want to walk in the will, I want to be in the will of God. If I want to align my life with what's always true, perhaps the most basic thing that I ought to do is be glad and be joyful, according to this passage, and greet the day and all of the people of my day from that position, for God already approves of this. God, what should I do? Be glad and be joyful. Now, that doesn't mean everything's easy. I think that the book is, of Ecclesiastes is clear that you know, life is not easy, and we'll get to that in a minute. So we're often rendering, I, this is a little uh, bold, I think, but I, I think we often render our attempts at making meaning in our lives, we render those attempts meaningless because, again, my metaphor, we're standing in front of the artwork. Where, where is the beauty of God? I don't know. Just a minute. Okay, where is the beauty of God? And we're still, we're standing right in front of it. So attempting to align my life with God's ways, modeling my life after Jesus, I'm trying to, but I'm being bitter or angry or joyless or complaining or controlling or worried all the time. We, I mean, it's, it, it seems meaningless. Like, if I believe in God's ways and yet I constantly am pushing against them, then they have no meaning. So, perhaps be glad and be joyful because God already approves of this. Next part of the passage says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I love that. Hey, where you're going... like the realm of the dead, there ain't nothing. He's like, dude, you're going to die. All of us. And so work hard 
and be freaking glad that you have work to do. Because where you're going, there's no working or planning or knowledge or wisdom. All of it's gone. So whatever you do, do it to your best effort. Make it count while you're here. Now, this doesn't mean, I don't think it means that your job, our jobs, are the focus of our lives. I don't think that's the way we should read this. I think this was written, you know, thousands of years ago when the world looked very different. But it means that whatever you have to do, work at it. Do it. And the same concept is found in the New Testament. I mean, Colossians 3.23, and there's a couple of other passages where it says, whatever you do, work at it as for the Lord, not for men, not for people. So that's bibl- this is biblical through and through. Work, do it, because that's your lot in life. That's what you got to do. So if you're going to, yeah. So sometimes at my job, when people are complaining and whining and second-guessing, I want to just say, do your job. Just do your job. Like, I, you know, like, like yeah, it's hard, right? My job, is, it's hard. Uh, how about we just go do our jobs? During, the, during COVID, I'm a teacher, and um, now I have a leadership role, but at the time I was just, I was a, you know, one of um, my colleagues, one of the peers in, in the English department. And you know, there would get an email that says, now we have to do the hokey pokey before we put on our masks and, because that's what we're supposed to do. And okay, well, we're doing the hokey pokey. And then everybody would, you know, you'd come out after class and, sit, and people would be like, did you get the email? Mm-hmm. What email? The email about the hokey pokey. We got to do the hokey pokey now. Can you believe it? And I'm like, and, and I'm like, yeah, I, I guess we're supposed to do the hokey pokey. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I didn't read the, the, the study about the hokey pokey, so I'm just going to do it and I'm going to go do my job because I got other things that I have to worry about. Just do your job. In the, in, work yourself in quietness to the work of your hands. So then he says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. I'm like almost literally, you know, time and chance happens, right? Like fill in your blank of the other bumper sticker. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Duh. So I think this is for like those of us who are like the wind chasers. And the principle that I wrote down was accept that life is precarious and that our expectations are not universal. So for example, just to say, just because you're swift doesn't mean you'll win the race. That's what he says. Just because you're strong doesn't mean you'll win the battle. Just because you're wise or wealthy doesn't mean you'll be fed well. Just because you're loud doesn't mean you'll be heard. Just because you're learned doesn't mean you'll find favor in the eyes of others or in the eyes of God. Boy, that's encouraging, huh? Let's pray. If we stop there, it's depressing and disorienting. But that's not where the writer ends. At the end of the passage he inserts this little section that gives us a kind of answer to this implicit question that hangs over much of this text, which is, how am I supposed to live then? If there's all these seasons of life and you know, time to you know, 
plant and a time to harvest. And I mean, like, if there's time to mourn and a time to laugh. Okay, what am I supposed to do then? Tell me what I'm supposed to do. So he says, I saw something else under the sun, which I think is a neat, I hadn't really thought about it, but like a neat uh, little uh, literary device. I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. This is the way life goes. I saw one other thing under the sun. That, and that greatly impressed me, he says. There was once a small city with a few, only a few people in it. Powerful king came against it, surrounded it, built huge siege works against it. There lived in that city a man who was poor but wise. He saved the city by his wisdom. doesn't tell us how, but he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that guy. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Listen to me. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war. But one sinner, this is interesting, one sinner destroys much good. So, my last little point is, what, how are we supposed to live? Pursue wisdom. Not that when you die, you're going to be like, you know, wisdom's going to be like, you know, coming up from the ground. I mean, we're all going to be, you know, worm food, but pursue, pursue wisdom. Because wisdom is better than strength. But a sinner can destroy much good. And I, I, I want to just kind of end with this little reflection. What does it mean to be a sinner in this context? And I think maybe we can see it as someone who tries to create his or her own meaning in life without honoring the wisdom that God gives. It's the way we try to overpower our lives, like that loud king in this, in this passage. We try to overpower our lives with meaning and comforts and pleading with God for what we think we need. That Maybe that's the way that we destroy much good. Because then, again, this metaphor, we're standing in front of what's true and beautiful and awesome, but we're looking at ourselves. So if a pine tree tried to become a maple tree, it wouldn't succeed, right? If an elephant had aspirations to live as a tiger, it wouldn't work. If a little junco bird wanted to be an eagle, it would fail. Yet we constantly, it seems to me, try to do and be something that... We, when we haven't even quieted down, slowed down, and asked ourselves, what does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be human, made in the image of God? And it doesn't mean chasing and running and yelling and pleading and wondering and worrying. According to this passage, our lives are to be spent in gladness and in joy, doing whatever we can do to the best of our efforts, to accept the precariousness and uncertainty of life, which is a daily reminder that we, too, are creatures of the earth and we're animated by a God who has ordered all things. And if we find ourselves, according to this passage, in that place, then that, that is good. There's a quote by a writer, a Christian writer, theologian named Frederick Beekner. Many of you have read his, his works. 
he wrote a, a book called Beyond Words, Daily Readings and the ABCs of Faith. And I just want to close with this. His quote is, Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Let's pray, and then we'll do our Lord's Table liturgy.